She left Massachusetts for California to chase her dream. But for Beth Short, her dream turned into a nightmare. This is the story of the Black Dahlia, one of the most gruesome, vicious murders of the 20th century. It is the story of false leads, botched investigations, and alleged police corruption. There were over 150 suspects, but no one was ever arrested. It has spawned dozens of books, movies, and of course, podcasts. Police officers, pathologists, and a host of amateur sleuths have put forth their theories. But it remains America's ultimate cold case. So mix yourself a Manhattan and listen to the story of Beth Short. Maybe you can solve the riddle of the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short was born in Boston in 1924. Her family moved around before settling in Medford, Massachusetts. Her father, Cleo Short, like so many businessmen, lost everything during the Great Depression, and in 1930, when Beth was six, he left home one night. His abandoned car was found near a bridge over the Charles River. With Cleo presumed dead, Beth's mother moved out of the house and into a small apartment with her five children and took a job as a bookkeeper. Beth was troubled by asthma and eventually had to have lung surgery. Her doctor and mother thought she might do better in a warmer climate, so she moved to Florida and stayed with family friends in the winter and spent the summer in Medford with her mother and sisters. In 1942, the family received a shock. Beth's mother received a letter postmarked from California from Beth's father, Cleo. It turned out he had not committed suicide. He faked his death and headed west to start a new life and a new family. Beth was 18, and she wanted a new start, too. She loved the movies, and her friends said that, like many girls in the 1940s, she dreamed of becoming an actress. She went to California and moved in with her father. Things didn't go smoothly, however. Father and daughter began to fight. She thought he was too controlling, and he wanted her to get a job and help out around the house. After a few months, she moved out and took a job as a waitress at an army base, Camp Cook. It's now known as Vandenberg Air Force Base. She was very popular and at one point even won a kind of beauty contest voted by the soldiers as Camp Cutie of Camp Cook. She fell in love with a couple of soldiers, but one shipped out and another was killed in action. She moved back to Massachusetts, but before long, quickly returned to Hollywood. She took a few modeling jobs, and later the newspapers described her as an aspiring actress. But as far as anyone knew, she never had any acting jobs. By late 1946, she was living in Southern California, dating a few different men, but none really seriously. For a while, she stayed with a man named Mark Hansen, 
In December 1946, she became friends with Dorothy French, a ticket taker at a theater in San Diego. Dorothy told her that she could stay with her parents for a few days. She ended up staying there a month. In January 1947, Beth met a man named Red Manley, a married salesman. They began dating and she asked him for a ride back to Hollywood. When they arrived, he paid for a hotel room and according to him, he slept in the bed and Beth slept in a chair. The next day, January 9th, 1947, Manley had an early morning meeting. Beth told him that she was going to go back to Massachusetts, but first she had to meet her sister at the Biltmore Hotel. Manley took her to the Biltmore and left at about 6.30. The last time he saw Beth, she was making calls from a telephone booth in the lobby. A few hotel employees also recalled seeing her there. That was the last time anyone reported seeing Beth Short alive. On January 15th, Betty Bersinger and her three-year-old daughter were walking to a shoe repair store. As they cut through a vacant lot near 39th and Norton, Betty saw something white in the weeds. She went to investigate. It looked like a department store mannequin, she thought. Well, that's strange that someone would throw that away. Suddenly, she realized it wasn't a mannequin. It was a woman's body. And it had been cut in half. The legs were spread and laid a few feet away from the torso. The intestines were neatly tucked under the buttocks and her mouth had been sliced from the corners of her lips to her ears. Today, we'd say she looked a bit like the Joker from Batman. When the police arrived, they noted that the body had been drained of all blood and it appeared to have been washed. Obviously, they thought the woman had been killed somewhere else and her body brought to the vacant lot. They noted bruises on her torso and face and ligature marks on her arms and legs indicating that she had been tied up. An autopsy indicated that she had died from hemorrhage and shock to the brain. Most of the mutilation to the body had occurred after she had died. The police took her fingerprints and using a primitive forerunner of the fax machine, sent a photo to the FBI lab in Washington. Beth had been arrested for underage drinking a few years before, and the FBI was able to identify her fingerprints. She was 22 years old. From the beginning, the police investigation was compromised. Reporters and the public trampered all over the vacant lot, destroying any evidence that may have existed. The newspapers treated this as a sensational crime, printing all sorts of unsubstantiated rumors. They said her body was covered with cigarette burns, indicating she had been tortured. This wasn't true. They said the autopsy found feces in her stomach as if she had been forced to eat them. No one to this day is able to verify that. The newspapers also needed a name for the crime. There was a movie called The Black Dahlia. 
Customers at a drugstore where Beth went to buy her movie magazines remembered her long, luxurious hair. One of them said, we used to call her the Black Dahlia. The name stuck. To this day, the name Elizabeth Short is rarely remembered in connection with this crime. She will always be the Black Dahlia. The police investigation began with the assumption that Beth must have known her killer. A police psychologist believed that because of the mutilation of the body, the killer must have been trying to exact some sort of revenge. Perhaps he was a jilted lover. The police also focused on the severed body. It was done very carefully. They operated on the theory that the killer might have been a doctor or someone with medical training. On January 23rd, the Herald Express newspaper, which first broke the story, received a phone call from someone claiming to be the killer. He offered to send some of Beth's personal effects to prove he wasn't lying. The next day, a package arrived containing her birth certificate, business cards, and photographs, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen printed on the cover. He was the person with whom Beth had stayed. He became the prime suspect. There was also a note made up of words and letters clipped from magazine saying that the killer would give up if he only received 10 years in prison. All of these materials had been soaked in gasoline to remove and erase fingerprints. The police questioned Mark Hansen. They discovered that he had had a crush on Beth, but that she had rejected him. There was never any concrete evidence connecting him to the murder. He was later shot by a girlfriend, but survived. He died in 1964. Another prime suspect was Leslie Dillon. The district attorney submitted his name to a grand jury, but due to police misconduct in the investigation, he was released and the grand jury could not return an indictment. The grand jury did, however, find strong evidence of police corruption and destruction of evidence, resulting in the removal of several high-ranking officials. Through the years, a number of books and television documentaries and podcasts have advanced theories about the identity of the murderer of Beth Short. Some have made reasonable cases, while many have not. But one of the most intriguing theories has been advanced by a former Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective named Steve Hodell. Steve Hodell was the son of a Los Angeles physician, George Hodell. Hodell was on the original list of suspects in the Black Dahlia murder. One day, Steve was talking to his sister Tamara, and she casually mentioned, you know, Dad killed the Black Dahlia. Steve told his sister she was crazy, and putting his years as a police detective to work, he began researching the case to prove his sister wrong. But as he delved into the police reports, the grand jury testimony, and his father's personal history, he slowly came to the terrifying realization that his sister was probably right. Their dad, he believed, was the Black Dahlia Killer. 
The first revelation came when he was going through some of his father's personal effects. He found a photo album. It contained the usual photos you might expect, pictures of family vacations, the kids, birthday parties, and the like. But tucked away in the back of the album was a picture of a young, raven-haired woman. My God, he thought, it's the Black Dahlia. Facial recognition software, however, has been unable to confirm a match. He eventually moved back to Los Angeles and put all of his investigative skills to work. He looked at the crime scene photos and researched the medical journals of the time. Beth's torso was severed with a surgical technique called a hemicorporectomy. It allows the severing of the body without damaging the lumbar bones of the spine. It was taught in medical schools during the 1930s when his dad, George, was studying to be a doctor. He examined the notes and letters sent to the newspapers by the person claiming to be the killer. They bore a striking resemblance to his father's handwriting. A handwriting expert later said there was a strong likelihood that George Hodel was indeed the writer. But another expert who examined the letter said that the results were inconclusive. He found receipts for five bags of concrete purchased in the weeks before the murder. These were the same size and brand of bags that were found near the body. Police theorized that the bags were used to move the body to the vacant lot. In 2003, he published a book of his findings, The Black Dahlia Avenged, The True Story. It made the New York Times bestseller list. After the book was published, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times requested the original police files of the investigation. He discovered, upon reviewing the files, that George Hodel was indeed a major suspect. In fact, the police obtained a warrant for a wiretap of Dr. Hodel's phone and home. In February 1950, there was a transcript of a conversation with another person. George Hodel said, 8.25 p.m., woman screamed, woman screamed again. It should be noted the woman was not heard before the scream. Later in the day, Hodel talks to a confidant. Realizing there was nothing I could do, I put a pillow over her head and covered her with a blanket. Got a taxi. Expired 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. The surveillance continues routinely, but for one telling moment. Hodel said, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. For Hodel, that was the clincher. He eventually talked to the sitting L.A. County District Attorney, Steve Keyes. According to Steve, the DA told him that he was pretty tough on charging crimes, but if he had been presented with the evidence, he would have had no trouble charging George Hodel with two counts of murder. So, is George Hodel the murderer of the Black Dahlia? It must be said that all this evidence is circumstantial. 
There is no direct evidence connecting him to Beth Short. No eyewitnesses. No fingerprints. No footprints. The wiretap is there, but it isn't, as Steve Hodell claims, a confession. After he wrote the book, Hodell continued to investigate. He discovered more evidence that he believed linked his father to at least a dozen other murders from California to the Philippines, where Dr. Hodell lived for four years. He now says that he thinks his father may have killed up to a dozen women and may, in fact, be the infamous Zodiac Killer. All of this has caused a number of people who originally believed his theory of the Black Dahlia murder to question Steve Hodell's judgment. Many of them have moved on and say they don't want to discuss him. This proves, Hodell says, that the Los Angeles Police Department is still perpetrating a cover-up. Let's give him the last word. His readers, he says, are his judge and jury. Thank you, Dad. Believe it or not, I have not yet heard the whole Black Dahlia story until you just read it. So that was a roller coaster. It was, and I I still don't think you've heard the whole story. I don't know if anyone ever will. Uh, Just a lot of ups and downs and and crazy twists and turns throughout this thing, aren't there? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, before we talk about the actual crime, we will do our Trends of the Crime section, sponsored by Style a la Mode. So I've broken Elizabeth Short's fashion up a little into her teen, teen years and her young adult years, what what there was of her young adult years. So um, I've got it split from 1935 to 1944 and kind of overlapping 1943 to 1946. So due to the invasion of Paris in June 1940, the United States was cut off from French couture for four years. And this was a big deal because we got all our fashion from the French until we couldn't anymore. So the U.S. fashion designers were forced to develop their own style separate from French couture designs. So they were like, oh crap, I have to think for myself. What are we going to do? I've always wondered something. Mm -hmm. What does couture mean? You know, Dad, I don't know the definition. Let me look it up. Probably something like fancy and expensive. Let's see what the actual definition is. Well, it's a cool-sounding, snobbish word. It is. Here. The design and manufacture of fashionable clothes to a client's specific requirements and measurements. So it's like tailor-made. That's why it's so expensive. So it's not ready to wear. Correct. It's the opposite. It's not ready to wear yet. Okay. (laughs) Um, But the American designers decided that they wanted easy and ready to wear clothing uh, and modern clothing as opposed to the elaborate and elite confections of Paris. And practicality was valued highly and resulted in the use of easy care fabrics, adaptable styles, and capsule wardrobes, which are coming back into style now, with elements that could be interchanged. So instead of getting everything specially made, they decided, uh, we're just going to make practical clothes that... Um, you can buy and wear over and over. 
which has stuck around. Mass production was now seen as an advantage rather than a hindrance. And New York-based ready-to-wear designers created pieces that were viewed as symbolic of American values, such as democracy, pioneer spirit, and a pragmatic approach to life. What's a capsule wardrobe? A capsule wardrobe is not what I have. <laughs> a capsule wardrobe is a very uh, limited wardrobe. So you would have, let's say, five pairs of pants, seven tops. You have a certain number for everything. And then, but it's everything can be worn interchangeably. That's not like you. It's not like me. Kind of like me, though. Kind of like you. I, I envy those who have capsule wardrobes. It seems very easy, but I just like clothes too much. I can't do it. Okay, so from 43 to 46, um, we had a bit of a change because we were able to get Paris fashion back in 1945. And American Vogue noted a very slight tendency toward the longer skirts on the Paris spring collections of 1945. And when Paris was liberated in August of 1944, the search for a new silhouette began. So basically, Europe and the US, by Europe I really mean France, were in a race. Who is going to come up with the hot new silhouette that's going to happen? And French designers didn't waste any time, and they soon exported their latest outfits to cities in Europe and the US. Wide shoulders became fashionable toward the end of the war, and outfits could be seen as variations on a theme. There were a lot of v-necks, narrow waists, skirts with pleats on either side of a flat front, and dark accessories. And um, I know that Beth didn't get to experience Dior's new look, but it's too iconic that I had to talk about it in here. So in 1947, uh, this was a really important year in fashion because that was the year that Dior's new look was released. And the new look marked a change from the previous decade's square-shouldered and boxy shapes. The new look collection, launched in February 1947, included rounded or sloped shoulders, a tiny nipped-in waist, padded and rounded hips, and a very full skirt with heavy pleating. So this kind of goes into the 1950s silhouettes that we all think of with the tiny waist mm -hmm. and the big skirt. The new look required specific undergarments to create the ideal silhouette. This is where we had a lot of corsets and girdles and brassieres or waist cinchers. And all of that proved to be the basis of fashion during this period and helped women to achieve this hyper-feminine look. So the idea was to look super feminine, tiny waist, very hourglass looking, but not too defined. So were women wearing uh, pants at all during this time period or was it mostly dresses and skirts? It was mostly skirts, but I mean, there were of course, especially in the first section I was talking about uh, where America kind of came up with their own style, there were some pants in there, but this new look was strictly a skirt and dress situation. Um, and the bar suit was the design that started it all with the new look. Um, Carmel Snow, American editor of Harper's Bazaar, called the collection the new look and it stuck. So she called the bar suit the new look. And I will post a picture of what started it all. And of course, since dad's here, I have to talk about the men. Especially one man. Especially one man. Who's that? Frank Sinatra. 
the chairman of the board, yep. old Blue Eyes. <laughs> Mr. Blue Eyes. Uh, so yeah, think Frank Sinatra style when you think men in the 40s. That's, that's our guy. Pork pie, Homburg, fedora hats, uh, the working man's cap, single-breasted sports suits, uh, checked fabrics, flat pockets, and trench coats. And have you heard the terms spivs and wide boys? I, I have not. I have not. What's it mean? I hadn't either. So this um, passage comes from the Definitive History of Costume and Style by the Smithsonian. It's on page uh, 302, if you have the book. All my K-State fashion major friends, you should have this book. Um, so the passage is, The origin of the word spiv applied to a salesman is unknown, but the similar term, wide boy, could come from a penchant for thickly striped suits, generous lapels, or wide showy ties. A British phenomenon, spivs waited on the street corners, especially in London's East End, for business that would come their way. The spiv of wartime cartoons wore his suits double-breasted, his soft hat angled, and his mustache neatly trimmed. So that's what that means. So a spiv was a was a salesperson. Salesperson. Yeah, someone who sold clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, do you have any questions about the fashion that happened? Well, I know, but I guess now I can start calling you spiv since you <laughs> used to work in a store selling clothes. Oh, yeah. I did that for a long time. All right. But I don't need more. Okay, well, <laughs> what's next, Spiv? <laughs> okay, Dad, before we get into our discussion of the Black Dahlia crime, why did you choose a Manhattan this week? Well, it's the, uh, it's the 1940s, and the Manhattan started to become popular around then. It, it, it had been around again for a long time, probably since the, just right after the Civil War. That was one reason. Another reason, we have been having uh, gin drinks quite a bit, so I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to do something with whiskey, and Manhattan is one of the uh, premier rye whiskey drinks. So, a Manhattan for this week. What does a Manhattan taste like? Manhattan has a combination of sweet vermouth, so it's got the sweetness and maybe Maybe a little bit of, of juice from uh, a jar of Maraschino cherries, uh, and then the, the spicy rye whiskey. And mm -hmm. rye whiskey is uh, is probably my second favorite kind of whiskey. I just love the spice. So we've again got that, that great combination of spice and sweet. Great. Well, first, I have to address Cleo faking his death. Cleo was Beth's dad. That was rude. Yeah, it was. I mean, and I've never thought of doing that. I, I've never thought Shocking. of. I've never thought of how can I get away. Just it, it's foreign to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure. The whole concept is foreign to me. A house full of women. I'm sure <laughs> it's foreign to you. Um, yeah. So I I dug a little deeper into this, and his family assumed he committed suicide, and they thought this because of the 1929 stock market crash. He built many golf courses until the crash, and then the family lost most of their savings. So that's a fun job. What do you think? Building mini golf courses. I didn't even know mini golf was around in the 1920s. I mean, this is from Wikipedia, so mm -hmm. someone could have just been funny and put that in. But... I, I read that too in, in multiple sources. Oh, okay. So evidently there, there were 
many uh, many golf courses around back then. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Seems pretty fun. Fun yeah. guy. Except, yeah, kind of rude. Um, I do wonder what it was like. I mean, you said that Beth and her dad fought a lot, but how weird would it be to go live with the dad that you thought was dead and then just go live with him as a teenager? That would be so odd. Yeah, and I, I, I wonder if it was I want to go live with my dad or I just want to get away from my mom and my five sisters. And we know that she loved Hollywood. She loved movies. She spent a lot of time um, in Massachusetts and in Florida in a movie theater. And I think maybe she saw this as a ticket out. Hey, I've got someone in California now. I can move out there and become a famous actress and I've got some place to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, clearly, she hadn't seen her dad for what, 12 years, I guess. So she probably didn't, never really knew him. Yeah. And uh, when they finally did get together, it didn't go smoothly. Yeah. I mean, not surprising if you haven't been around someone and then all of a sudden have to live with them. So um, has, has Cleo's second family ever talked about the Black Dahlia case or have any of them spoken about it? I've tried to I've tried to research that. I can't really find anything about his second family. Have you been able to find anything? I didn't find anything either. I was hoping you did. I did not. Yeah. No, he's uh he's kind of a cipher. I mean, we know what he did and we know he left and we know Beth went to live with him, but I don't know anything about his life in California. He died, I think, in oh, the 1960s maybe. I also wonder if they knew that he left a family to start this family. I doubt it, but you know. Yeah. That would have been a shock to the wife. Like, oh, yeah. You have another (laughs) daughter? You have five daughters? What? Or six? Crazy. So, Betty thinking that Beth was a mannequin is all too common of a theme, and people need to stop walking up to mannequins in alleys. Because it's always a dead body, so don't do it. Is that sarcasm? Yes. Oh, wait. No, I mean don't do it. <laughs> yeah, this kind of, this reminds me a little bit of one of our, our earlier crimes, the Leopold and Loeb crime, when they tried to stuff little Bobby Franks underneath a bridge but left his arm sticking out. Um, you know, obviously this was just a, a, a very bizarre and McCarr murder. The, the man obviously wasn't trying to hide it. I mean, mm-hmm. just the, the whole thing from the way the body was positioned to where it was. Uh, he seemed to really prize the shock value of the whole thing. Which is so, like, inconsiderate and gross because a woman and a child came across this. Mm-hmm. And, like... That's probably not the worst scenario. I mean, her family would probably be the worst, but a woman and a child, like a three-year-old child stumbling upon this, is very close to the worst thing that could happen. The worst people who could find something like this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's gross and disgusting and sociopathic, for sure. You know, if anybody is really, really interested, you can find actual pictures of the body online. I don't think you're going to post those, I hope. Uh, No, I will not be looking at those either. But they are out there, and it was a pretty gruesome scene. Yeah, I don't don't do uh, the the dead body photos. I won't sleep, so 
Yes, well, moving on to our probably prime suspect, mm -hmm. Dr. Hodel. Yeah. Do you think he's the most likely of the suspects? From everything I've read, I, I think it's likely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but again, there, there are inconsistencies. There really was no evidence ever connecting him directly to Beth Short. So why did he do it? Right. Uh, there are theories that I think you're going to get into later about some photos from an artist, perhaps. But mm -hmm. uh, there, there just seem to be a lot of a lot of coincidences in this case. The the wiretaps, the his background as a surgeon. So I, I think it's credible. I don't think there's enough evidence to say he he could be convicted, but I can see why he's the prime suspect. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's hard because it's not like he was her boyfriend or someone that she knew, but someone who's not a surgeon can't just cut a body like that. Mm -mm, no. So, uh, talk about his accusations of another crime you told me about he, he was accused of. You mean... Uh, the gross the, one. The rape of his daughter? Yes. Yeah. I mentioned in the in the podcast about Tamara, mm -hmm. uh, Detective Hodel's sister. Uh, uh, she maintained that that her father raped her when yeah, she was sad. eight, I think, maybe or maybe twelve. Um, yeah, he he did not seem to be a savory character at all. Right. So he was also believed to have, to have killed his secretary, mm -hmm. who he said, "Well, they can't talk to her because she's dead." Right. Why? Why? Uh, why did he possibly kill her? What was the motive there? This was interesting. So Ruth Spaulding, his secretary, died in 1945, and uh, detectives believe that he murdered her and made it look like a drug overdose. So it it looked like she had overdosed on drugs, but they believe that he murdered her and uh, in order to cover up a financial fraud case involving illegal abortion services. Yeah, he was a, he was a fairly well-known abortion doctor in the Los Angeles area. If a person needed an abortion, uh, there was a there was a black market, if you will, of abortion doctors, and he was a prominent one. So, of course, abortion was illegal back then. Right. But he was a well-known abortion doctor. Mm -hmm. So, it wasn't to cover up the abortion services. It was to cover up a financial issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I think the I think the IRS was looking into him. Um, for tax fraud, unpaid income taxes, and things like that. And they were probably wanting to talk to Ruth, mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Well, he became a prime suspect for the Black Dahlia case in 1949, and uh, he became a prime suspect for the Black Dahlia case in 1949, and a year later he abandoned his family to live in the Philippines and didn't return until 1990 when he was 83. Mm -hmm. doesn't look very innocent when you run away to another country. No, and uh, his son, his son believes that shortly after he arrived in the Philippines, he may have uh, murdered more than one woman there. There are some unsolved murders in the Philippines that began with his arrival. So again, just another, another coincidence, some more circumstantial evidence. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So do we think it was him... 
in my opinion, it seems pretty obvious based on the circumstantial evidence. However, like I said earlier, he was not connected to her in any other way. But whoever killed Beth clearly knew a technique for severing a body. Um, so that's what kind of makes me think it was probably him. That I think that's the strongest piece of circumstantial evidence. Whoever did this uh, knew exactly what they were doing when they severed that body. And it had to have been someone with, with medical training. I, I suppose perhaps even maybe an undertaker could have. But uh, the fact that he was in medical school when this procedure was being taught, I think is pretty damning evidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also thought it was odd how the daughter casually said, you know, dad killed the Black Dahlia, right? I'm sure she was afraid of him because uh, of the accusations that she has made against him. Uh, but it, it just seems odd that you would so casually say that. So I wonder mm-hmm. if it's like obvious because of how he was, like he obviously killed her. Do you think that was more of what it was? Yeah, no, well, what I'm curious of, I've never really read what she based that on. If maybe he had said something to her or maybe she had just saw the, uh, read about the case and about the severed body, but she was pretty adamant that, that he did it. And uh, Stephen, the uh, police detective, uh, originally got involved to try to disprove that. But as it went on, uh, he believed her. I, I saw an interview with, uh, with Stephen Hodell, and the, the interviewer said, what about your brothers and sisters? And he said, some are on board, some believe it, others have stopped speaking to him. He contacted the second family in the Philippines, and uh, most of them are just incredulous at the thought. They said, there's no way dad would have done this. Mm-hmm. Why do you think she never reported her suspicions or stated them to a person, a police, police person? Probably because she... She didn't have any proof. Maybe she was afraid. Maybe I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It happens a lot when people oh, yeah. don't uh, don't report a crime. Yep. And you never know how you would react in a situation. So. And for knows. for all I know, she may have reported it mm-hmm. to the to the True. police. He was a suspect after all, so maybe she did mention it. Mm-hmm. As we've mentioned many times, Steve, the son, is adamant that his father was the killer and the killer of many others. If if he were to find substantial proof, which has not been found yet, would the police open this case back up even though George is dead? Or how does that work? I'm going to just throw out a guess here and say no. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would the point be? Right. There, there would be no one to prosecute. Um, the victim and, and most of her family are dead. So I think I think most police would would just let this one pass. Mm-hmm. It would be too late to make an arrest and get a conviction. But what about for those of us who just have to know? Well, that's why we're here. <laughs> True. <laughs> we're here to tell you exactly what to think, and you have to believe us. <laughs> All right. So um, I saw the photos by Man Ray, who was a surrealist artist and family friend of the Hodels. And these are the photos that Steve Hodel claims were of Beth Short in that photo album. I feel like it looks like a totally different person, another woman with dark hair. What do you think, Dad? This is the first time I've seen these pictures, and and I'm looking at two of them. 
I would agree that certainly I don't think the first one looks anything like her. The second one, maybe, maybe a little. But uh, what what Steve Hodell has never mentioned is that uh, he submitted these pictures to a facial recognition expert who used a computer software, and uh, it was not a match. Right, and I can see. So I don't I don't see a, a lot of similarity here. Mm hmm. I, I definitely think that that is a weaker piece of evidence, but that doesn't, that's not me saying I don't think he did it because I still think he, George Hodel likely could have committed this murder. But I think that this piece of evidence, I don't think that the woman, and I will post a picture, I don't think the woman in this photo album looks enough like Beth to say that George had a photo of Beth in yeah. a photo album. Right, and, and you always wonder, what was the motive for the murder if Hodel did it? Was he just a psychopath who who got off on, on torturing and, and killing women? That's certainly not anything that, that hasn't happened before, mm -hmm. but there just doesn't seem to be a connection between the two. I'll get to one maybe motive. Okay. It's a stretch. All right. But well, uh, I'm ready. Like I said, the Hodels were close to surrealist artist Man Ray, and um, he took photos of the family, and uh, yeah, they just knew each other very well. And one of Steve Hodel, Steve is the son, one of Steve Hodel's main arguments that his dad was the Black Dahlia killer are the visual similarities between Man Ray's work and the Black Dahlia murder. Mm. So maybe George was like paying homage to his friend and recreating some of his paintings in real life. The former detective, Steve, believes that his father was trying to emulate the surrealist artist's work with mutilation of Short's body. This is dad's surrealistic masterpiece, he told one of my favorites, Dr. Phil. <laughs> I talk about his scalpel being his paintbrush and her body was the canvas. It's that twisted. And that passage was from Zachary Small's Was Man Ray the Inspiration Behind the Black Dahlia Murder? And then I also wanted to know about the, the smile that was uh, cut into Elizabeth's face. Mm -hmm. Some believe that Hodel appropriated surrealist artist Man Ray's L'Equivocu, maybe? Uh, in and that was uh, a piece created in 1943. They believe that he that Hodel appropriated this piece with his scalpel to create a similar crime signature on Short's body as an homage to her, his surrealist friend. Did you have a chance to look at any of Man Ray's work? I did. I looked at the this piece and the next one that I'm going to mention, and they do look similar. Like I said, I didn't look at the actual bodies. I'm sorry, I didn't look at the actual photos of. Beth's mutilated body, because I don't like looking at those things, but it looked like what you described in the story, mm. these pieces. Mm. Oh, I need so, to look at those. Yes. I'll do that later. I should have put them in here for you. Um, Hodel also says that Man Ray's Minotaur, which was a 1934 piece, may have also served as inspiration for his father's alleged mutilation of the Black Dahlia. Made from the torso of a woman's body, the photograph references the mythological beast imprisoned 
in a labyrinth on the Greek island of Crete, where youths were sacrificed to appease the gods. As a surrealist work, it also references the suppression of libidinal... How do you say that? Libidinal. Libidinal, thank you. Impulses, a la Freud. In 1969, Man Ray also created a lithograph called... Oh, gosh. Les Invendables. Les Invendables. So much French in this. Uh, which he believes matches with the crime scene photography of Short's body that had circulated through the public at that point in time. That was also from Zachary Small's um, article. So, yes. Um, these pieces do resemble what was done to Beth's body. Which I know is kind of a stretch of a motive. But he seems like he was a little interesting in the mind, so I don't know. You know, this may be worth another podcast, maybe next season or something, thinking about some more of these, because these, this is this is information I hadn't really been aware of, so mm-hmm. maybe we can uh, look further Elaborate. at this. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Um, well, the last item I wanted to touch on, I've always been fascinated by the Zodiac killer was George Hodel the Zodiac I'm saying no what are you saying I haven't seen any evidence to indicate he was and I I think this is where uh, Stephen Hodel has gone off the rails a bit I agree Um, he wrote his first book it got him a lot of attention people um, thought this is probably right he was on Anderson Cooper interviewed him on CNN he was on the Dr. Phil show (laughs) But then it just seemed uh, he became obsessed by it um, and um, didn't know where to stop. I I read a a little interview with his son, and his son just kind of rolled his eyes and said, you know, this is dad's, this, the dad thinks this is his legacy. So um, did George Hodel kill the Black Dahlia? Maybe, maybe even probably. But beyond that, I think... And maybe women in the Philippines, but I'm going to say definitely no on the Zodiac. I am too. I am too. Something funny I saw uh, in an article was uh, was a quote, everyone thinks their dad was the Zodiac. Do you? (laughs) You've heard it here first, (laughs) folks. I think my dad is the Zodiac. No. No, she didn't mean that. She didn't mean that. I did not mean it. Dad was too young at the time of the Zodiac killings. But, um, yes, I people in the generation above me, which would be Gen X, a lot of them think their dad was the Zodiac. So, um, however, according, or, um, according to this article, which was called... True Crime Murder Myths. Oh, crap. I don't have the actual title. It starts with True Crime Murder Myths. Uh, this article ba- basically says that George wasn't the Zodiac. The With the non-credible handwriting samples compared to the Zodiac's letters and the fact that his photos just... The photos that Steve is bringing just aren't reliable. I mean, basically, they're saying Steve is not a reliable source. So. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that that's unfortunate because I think that taints 
some of the real evidence he he brought about the Black Dahlia right. killing. I'm afraid now people think, well, he's just a crackpot. If he's not right about the Zodiac, he's probably not right about the Black Dahlia. And I think he may very well be right about the Black Dahlia. I agree. Yes, I think it's. I think he brought forth some strong evidence and some strong thinking points about the Black Dahlia murder. But yeah, Zodiac, not so much. So actually, you don't watch American Horror Story, right, Dad? I've watched one or two, but no, not regularly. I think, someone correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was the season Cult uh, where they they basically say, like, this group of women were the Zodiac Killer. And I can't remember why they were doing it. Uh, someone in the Facebook group tell me because this is bugging me now. But I always wonder, like, what if we're just looking in the completely wrong places for the Zodiac Killer, you know? Mm-hmm. What if it was aliens? Who knows? <laughs> Why haven't we found him? One I think of these you need... days we should... Uh... I think maybe you should put the wine down now. <laughs> I know. I sound like Steve just making <laughs> Zodiac claims. but All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Next week, we're starting our trilogy in, the, in some JFK-type crimes. Yes. You want to introduce the three we're doing? Well, we're going to talk, of course, about the assassination of, of uh, President Kennedy, uh, some of the various theories that are out there. I have my opinion. I'll be glad to share it next week. Some of you won't like it. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, suicide? Or was she silenced? And lastly, we're going to talk about Chappaquiddick. Um Again, not uh, not a murder, or was it? This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our VIP Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There is a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mays. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.